Welcome to the First Mass Podcast. Today, Pastor Paul continues his sermon series, Lessons from Abraham, from Genesis chapter 13. Today, he's talking about the wilderness that is in Abraham. Let's listen in. I'm, in, I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 12 and flip over to Genesis 16 this morning. If you'd like to follow along in your own Bible, you might open to those chapters, starting in Genesis chapter 12. We're looking into God's Word this morning. We've, uh, we've worshipped through song. We've worshipped through prayer. We, worship, we continue worshipping by looking at God's Word. And we're looking at some of the most ancient of the writings in Scripture today. Looking at one of the, the stories that goes back the furthest. If we're, if we're looking chronologically at the Bible. And, well, I guess page-wise too. We're, we're pretty early on. Uh, it's page 10 in mine. So that's pretty early on. So we're, uh, we're, we're looking at the figure, this Old Testament figure, Abram. His name will change in a little while to Abraham. Uh, he, he's one of those very first people that God spoke to in, in Scripture, in, in history, that we know of. This is, this is the story, this is probably one of the earliest stories we have of, of God really speaking and calling to people. God has been on this project throughout history, from the very, very early days in, in Abram's story of calling people to himself, of asking people to, to join in relationship with God, of, of wanting to walk with people. And it, it's a project of God's that continues right until today. God is calling you into a relationship. God is calling you to, to walk with God and to know and to do God's will. And so, each of us continue this, this story that is begun so many years uh, in the past. But for everyone in history who has experienced this story, it's, it's not a straight line. You know, there are, there are very few straight lines in nature. There's just not very many straight lines in nature. There are almost no straight lines in relationship, and in particular, relationship with God. Uh, we, we, just, we, we don't see an A to B, like right now to heaven, straight line. Just, there doesn't exist such a thing for any person who has ever been called into relationship with God. We all have these winding, crooked paths that, that have led us through our, our experience with God and our relationship with God. And you know, some of the cr- crooked paths in life are from our own doing, right? Like we, we realize after it's too late that there was the easy way to follow God and then there was the way that we chose. There, there was like the, the right path, the correct path, the clear path. We knew, maybe we even knew what wisdom said we should do and, and we knew there was a good way to follow God, that the obedience would call us that way. And whether it was just plain obstinance or just being dumb or, or whether it was because something looked easier or more enticing on the other path, we took the other path. And we discovered that in our, our attempt to follow after God, we just, we blew it. We, and it's of our own making. But today we're looking at some of the crooked paths in life that really aren't of our own doing. Because it turns out that a lot of the crooked paths that people have in their relationship with God, a lot of the ways that don't seem like a straight line from A to B are not paths of our own making. We, we, uh, we have, uh, we have experienced in our, the life of our congregation over the last year those phone calls that change everything, be it a diagnosis or a meeting with a doctor or, 
or someone just letting us down, somebody not keeping their word, uh, unexpected death. And, you know, we suffer a lot for our own poor choices, but it seems like in this world we suffer a lot for the poor choices of other people, and we suffer a lot for just the, the fact that we don't get to control everything in this world. We just, not everything in, in our lives is under our control. We don't get to dictate to every detail exactly how it's going to be. And so we, we go through dark valleys. And if I'm being honest, this, this year has been tough. This year has been tough as, as uh, seeing people I love go through dark times and, and experience some of these crooked ways. And, you know, I can't, I can't say anything other than that God's been super good to me. God has blessed me. But even, even in the midst of God's incredible blessing to me, as I have seen people I love go through difficult times, that, that wears on people. It wears on me. Um, I remember when I was in college, <laughs> this is a not a great story. When I was in college, I was a freshman. I was a freshman in college. Come back from one of the breaks, you know, during the winter time. I can't remember what the break was. Came back, and my buddy Chad, he said, a group of girls want, to, want me to get a, a group of guys together, and, and we're going to go out. And I didn't get invited in a lot of guy-girl hangout situations as a freshman in college, so I was there. And... Uh, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. It became obvious that uh, that Chad was interested in Jen in this group. And then a couple of weeks later, turns out that Jen had no interest in Chad. And so I began the program of giving Jen the stink eye because, I mean, here's my buddy and he, she, she obviously deserves the stink eye, right? And so, I mean, that just continued because what do you do when you start giving someone the stink eye? You just continue giving them the stink eye until senior year of college. And uh, senior year of college, it turns out that Jen and I, we were both involved in student government and we shared an office. And, uh, and after all those years of giving Jen the stink eye, she turned out she was pretty cool. Uh, she was pretty cool. <laughs> and... and uh, so one day, one day, Chad came into my office, and here I was, like, starting to think, you know, Jen's, Jen probably didn't deserve the stink eye over all those years, and Chad comes in, and, and they strike up a conversation, and it's like, they're, it, it's obvious that they have rapport, like, they had been friends over these last three years that I had been holding a grudge against her for breaking his heart. Chad, don't you know, you're supposed to be giving her the stink eye, aren't we mad at her? No, Chad was never mad at her. Chad, Chad didn't care in the least. I just kind of, you know, I had just assumed that we were giving her the stink eye because I, this is a very human experience, right? We, we all have those, those people that we love so much that, you know, you can say anything you want to me, but don't you go after my friend. Don't you go after my sister or my brother. You, you, you can't. You can't treat other people that way. And, and we tend to very often, we, you know, our hearts are broken for other people when, and, and we hold on to the hurt for other people when, when it's just us, you know, no big deal. We can just let that roll off our back. But, but when we see other people go through difficulty, sometimes it's kind of hard on ourselves. Uh, and, and that, I think that maybe, maybe some of us here feel like me, like so blessed, but 
in this season, we kind of look at the difficulties that some of our brothers and sisters are going through, and we begin to think, God, what are you doing here? What, 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 have, you, what have you started here? What are you, how are you working in these people's lives? Well, we're, we're looking at uh, the story of Abram, and Abram has one of these experiences where the, the crooked path of following God was nothing of his own doing. It was actually famine, uh, which is something that none of us are, are dealing with currently. By God's grace, I, uh, I have never been forced out of my, my homeland by famine. This is, this is not something, and I think Abram would look around our, our, our property and see all the dead grass, and he would say, wow, you must have stored up a lot because, you know, we don't have a lot of green around here these days. Uh, the, this, is, this is not something that, that many of, ex, have, of us have experienced, but that's, that's the situation Abram found himself in in Genesis 12 and, and into chapter 13. God had called him from Haran, which is a city north of the promised land. He had been living there with his father and his, his brothers and their families. And God called him into the promised land, which was to the south of Haran. And it's this, this beautiful area. It's this land flowing with milk and honey, as it's described later on in Scripture. It's, it's an incredible place anybody would want to live in Haran, and, or in, in the promised land. And so... When, when Abraham begins moving in, in chapter 12, he begins moving, it tells us he moves by stages, which, which I think means that they would, they would travel for a day or two, and then they would kind of set up camp, let everybody get their bearings, let everybody rest up, get all the animals feeling good for some more travel, and then, and then they would travel a little bit more. And, and as, as Abram would do that, he, he got into the habit of building altars, and he would worship God in each of the places where he would stop in these stages of, of travel. And, and Abram would worship God in each of those places. It seems like Abram is just kind of constantly building altars in, in these early chapters of his story in the book of Genesis. But interesting thing happens, and there's no real explanation for why in, in, these, in chapter 12, early in chapter 12, Abram is called out of Haran, called out of his father's house, and he starts traveling south. He goes all the way through the promised land, all the way past the promised land. He ends up south of the promised land in a wilderness that's called the Negev. The Negev is sort of frontier land. It's, it's un, uninhabited. It's desert. It's, it's not a hospitable place. It's, it's a hard place to eke out a living. There are still people living nomadic lifestyles in, in this area that's called the Negev in the Bible because it's not a place that you can really settle. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't support life in, in that way. And so you, you begin to wonder, like, Abram moved from, from the north. He started traveling south. He, he had this, like, promise of this land that later on is described as a land flowing with milk and honey, Abram apparently doesn't find any of the milk or the honey. And he just keeps going south and, and he can't, he, he, never, he never stops. And then we get a little clue in Genesis chapter 12 verse 10 as to why he, maybe he never stopped in all of those early travels. In, in Genesis 12 10, we just read this, this little note. At that time, a severe famine struck the land of Canaan, forcing Abram to go down into Egypt where he lived as a foreigner. 
Now, if you're interested in some fascinating reading, I would suggest going on through the rest of, of Genesis chapter 12. There's a story here where Abram just sort of bumbles through and, and is blessed way beyond what he, he deserves. Uh, an author I've been reading recently refers to Abram as uh, being a, a lot like Forrest Gump. And, and uh, that's, good, that's an old reference. And so for the teens, Forrest Gump is, uh, is a movie that came out when I was in like, we, it came out in the 90s came out in the 90s. It was a long movie. In fact, it was so long, you had to get it on two VHS cassettes. Uh, it didn't fit on just one VHS cassette, and so you had to have two VHS cassettes. Thank you, Gina. Thank you, teens. So the Forrest Gump is this guy from, uh, where is he from? Alabama? Alabama. There is, so some of you know this, and, and he speaks slowly, and so people think that he has a developmental delay. He, they think he's not smart, and, but he, he goes through life just sort of, sort of going from floating, like from thing to thing, and everything he does, he has incredible success, and everything he does, like things turn out, he finds some unknown skill that he has, and, and it just, you know, it, it, Put, it, it propels him on to newer and greater things, and people around him, for the most part, tend to sort of benefit from the good things that, that he is experiencing. And so Abram is a lot like Forrest Gump. Like, he just sort of seems like he's floating. He doesn't appear to have much of a plan. He just appears to sort of be, be floating through and lo and behold, as he's just sort of floating through, just sort of taking the next step that seems obvious to him, good things happen. Good things happen. Better things than, than he could ever imagine. And so Forrest Gump, this is a feel-good movie. It's the feel-good movie of the year. I mean, you will, you will walk out of the theater happy. If, if you, uh, you probably can't find it in the theater. Um, you, if you read Abram, I'll... I'll be honest, it's, it would be a feel-good story if it weren't for Abram. It, it's a, it's a feel-good story because everything turns out good, but man, it turns out good in spite of the decisions that Abram makes along the way. So he goes into Egypt. The famine has forced him out of this land that it, God has promised to give to his descendants as an inheritance forever. Abram goes down into to Egypt and there in Egypt, instead of being like an honorable, nice guy or bumbling into some, you know, brick-making profession that he's really good at and makes a ton of money, he goes into Egypt with his beautiful wife, Sarai, and he says, Sarai, your beauty is going to cause me some problems here. This is, this is a situation we're coming into, Sarai, and it would really be nice for me if you would just say you're my sister. And, and so... Sarai's beauty, I mean, he's not wrong. Abraham is not wrong. She is beautiful, and she is taken into Pharaoh's house, made a wife, and, and Abram, meanwhile, receives the, the payment that Pharaoh wants to give for a beautiful bride to, to the bride's family. And so he receives, like, wealth. And, and I mean... 
Abram never acknowledges that he made a bad decision. Never. He, he, never, he never apologizes to Sarah that, that we see. He never expresses remorse that Sarai was taken into Pharaoh's house as a, as a bride. In fact, he accepts the money that Pharaoh wants to pay. You know, at some point you would think you might start to have like a ping of conscience. It's, you know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh's giving him all this money. He, he just guiltlessly accepts all that Pharaoh wants to give for, for Sarai. And then when, when his lie comes out, when his lie comes out, Pharaoh gives him an armed escort out of Egypt with Sarai and all of the wealth that, that uh, he had given Abram up to that point. He, Pharaoh doesn't expect like repayment. This is just sort of a crazy story of, of Abram being, you know, kind of a scoundrel and being incredibly blessed in spite of it. Now, biblical scholars uh, will wax poetically about this being a foreshadowing of God's people, Israel, being delivered from the Egyptians as slaves, uh, that it's, that it's just, just like that same thing um, when, when the Egyptians give gifts to the Israelites before they, before they leave. It's a pattern that happens again. But a- Abram, he goes back from, from Egypt into the Negev. He's back in the wilderness uh, in that transition space between Egypt and the promised land. Uh, it's, it's this stretch of, of land that doesn't, doesn't sustain life, even in the good years, regardless of whether there was a famine anymore or not. The Negev is not going to support him. So he travels through and, and as he gets back into the promised land, he, he and his nephew Lot are on the border of the promised land, kind of entered into the, to the fringes of the promised land, into the first places you would get to. And, and they discover that they have a problem. They have a problem of incredible wealth. It's a pro- Lord, I, if, if you're looking to plague other people with this kind of problem... <laughs> So we have to get to uh, Genesis 13 now to see what they do about their problem of incredible wealth. Follow along, if you will. Genesis 13, verses 1 through 7 says, So Abram left Egypt and traveled north into the Negev, along with his wife and Lot, Lot is his nephew, and all that they owned. Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. From the Negev, they continued traveling by stages toward Bethel, and they pitched their tents between Bethel and Ai, where they had camped before. This is, was the same place where Abram built an altar, and there he worshiped the Lord again. Lot, who was traveling with Abram, had also become very wealthy with flocks of sheep and goats, herds of cattle, and many tents. Notice it doesn't say silver and gold under, under Lot's wealth because Abram got silver and gold for Sarah. Uh, but the land could not support both Abram and Lot with all their flocks and herds living so close together. So disputes broke out between the herdsmen of Abram and Lot. 
So it's, it's uh, Abram, Abram and Lot have collected all this wealth. And, and a good portion of this wealth, like the, the silver and gold at least that's listed in, in uh, Genesis 13, it's due to Abram's journey into Egypt and, and his accepting treasure and, and more animals from Pharaoh for claiming that Sarai is his sister. And, and so Lot and Abram realize that there, there are consequences of, of being blessed in, in such a way. And there's responsibility that comes. And so they make a plan. We, we read their plan in verses 8 and 9. Finally, Abram said to Lot, let's not allow this conflict to come between us and our herdsmen. After all, we are close relatives. The whole countryside is open to you. Take your choice of the, any section of the land you want, and we will separate. If you want the land to the left, I'll take the land on the right. If you prefer the land on the right, then I'll go to the left. In the rest of the chapter, we see Lot go toward the, the Jordan River in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abram, it says, he settled in Canaan, which would have been to the west of the Jordan River, the, the land that that we know as the promised land, the land that, that uh, Israel uh, begins to settle in, the land that, that is, is talked about in so much of the Old Testament and in the stories of Jesus. And my interest in the story, though, is, is really just to consider Abram's experience up to this point. His, his wandering, his, his famine experience, his, his going into Egypt, his, his life in the Negev, you know, he's, he's forced out of this this promised land by famine. Uh, he goes wandering, he ends up in Egypt, back through the Negev uh, after, after his little Egypt sojourn. And he takes stock and he, and he realizes that he has all this wealth. You know, up to this point, his, his wealth isn't really mentioned. If you were just reading from the beginning of chapter 12 straight through, you could be under the impression that Abram is really just traveling with Sarah and Lot, and the, there's not all that much else around them. But when we get to into the story here in chapter 13, we realize, no, this isn't just a, a small little family trip. This is, these are huge caravans. These are cities on, on sand. I mean, these, these, are, these are big groups of people who are moving all the way through the wilderness, all the way into Egypt, all the way back this is, this is a huge enterprise that, that Abram has, has uh, built. And, and he realizes that he has responsibility with his wealth. And, and his responsibility really is to just make sure that his people don't fight with his cousin's people. That, that his house and Lot's house don't go to war. And, and I, I, I guess what, what I see here is Abram is just blessed. He's just blessed. He is incredibly blessed by God in spite of his poor choices, in, in spite of what, you know, kind of a scoundrel he is. The, the Lord takes care of Abram. He takes care of Lot too. But we don't hear about Lot being all that nefarious. But Abram is just incredibly blessed. And and I begin to, to think, when I think about Abram being so blessed, the, the one thing that comes back to mind is, 
is that wilderness was probably pockmarked with altars as, as Abram traveled through it. Uh, Abram, Abram traveled through the Negev in stages, stopping occasionally. And his pattern was, his habit was that we see developed in Genesis chapter 12. When he stopped, he built an altar and he worshiped. Abram, Abram was, was trying to sort of recapture the magic that he experienced in, in Haran. He was trying to hear God the way that he first heard God. And so it, at every turn, he, he was trying to, to worship God, to get into God's presence, to experience God. Well, there's another really clear picture of, of someone being blessed in, in the book of Genesis early on. And a, and a story that takes a, a person into the Negev. And that's in Genesis chapter 16. The story of Hagar, who is Sarai's servant. Uh, Sarai gave, gave Hagar to Abram because Sarai herself wasn't able to have children. She thought it would be a good idea to, for, for Hagar to have a child for Abram instead of Sarai. We looked a little bit at this story last week and, and saw how as soon as Hagar... Uh, was able to conceive, she, she began to uh, look down her nose a little bit at Sarai. Be, pregnancy in ancient times, it raised a woman's social status. And so the, the fact that Hagar was able to get pregnant immediately made her superior to, to Sarai, at least in Hagar's eyes. And, and really in the culture, it, it raised her, her social status. And so she, she really began to look down her nose at, at Sarai. She, she, was, she was still Sarai's servant, which is an interesting thing. It, it looks like Sarai has given Hagar as a wife, but, but she's still somehow Sarai's servant. And, and so uh, we read what happens to, to Hagar in Genesis 16. And, and we looked at a lot of this chapter last, last week, so I'm just going to start in, in verse 6 and read through the end of the chapter. It says, Abram replied, so this is after Sarai and Abram, or, or Sarai's really upset with Abram for, for going through with the plan that she came up with. And Abram says, look, she's your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to Shur, the angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she replied. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. And the angel also said, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of distress. This son of yours will be a wild man, as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone, and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all his relatives. Thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord. Who had spoken to her. She said, You are the God who hears who sees me. 
She also said, I have truly seen the one, have I truly seen the one who sees me? So that well is named Ber Lahai Roy, which means well of the living one who sees me. It can still be found between Kadesh and Berea, or Bered, excuse me. So Hagar gave Abram a son, and Abram named him Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. As Hagar is running away from Sarai, uh, we, we read some geographical locations here. Uh, we, we read she's on the road to Shur, and, and later on that the well is, is between Kadesh and Bered. The, these, uh, these places, they don't make sense to us. Like Most of us don't have the atlas of the Bible memorized, uh, and so, so I'll just I'll let you know the way that, that uh, Hagar was heading, she was, she was tending south. And, and she had ended up in the Negev. And, and so she was, she was in that wilderness place. And, and it's, it's not hard to kind of put two and two together. Hagar is Egyptian. She was heading south. She was heading back to Egypt. She, she, was, she was going back to the, to the life she knew before Abram came to Egypt lying about who Sarai is. And she, was, she was just going to go back and, and live with family. She was going to find the life that she had experienced before with her own people. And so she traveled, she had to travel through the Negev. Traveling through the Negev would be travel by stages. The the land doesn't support life, but the Negev is is marked with some springs or wells, places, oases that that you could stop in as you tried to make that treacherous journey through, through the desert. So Hagar may have traveled pretty far, in a, in a day or two to get to this spring, to get to this place where, where she was in a little island of life in the middle of this hot desert. It's, uh, it's in that island of life then that the angel of the Lord comes and speaks to Hagar. The angel of the Lord, if you, if you read carefully through Genesis 16, Hagar comes into the story at the beginning of Genesis 16. The angel of the Lord is the first person to address Hagar directly and the first person to use Hagar's name. Every, uh, use Hagar's name in, in, in directing to her and speaking to her. And so uh, it's, it, as Hagar had experienced life in Abram's house, even as Abram's wife, uh, Abram didn't see fit to speak directly to Hagar. To, to Sarai and Abram, Hagar was, was below. She was somebody to be spoken about, but not somebody to be spoken to. And, and so here, God speaks, the angel speaks directly to Hagar, the, the first person in the story to speak directly to her. And so when we understand that, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to, to understand why Hagar makes this big deal about seeing the one who sees me. Hagar had lived a life of being unseen, of being somebody not worthy of actually looking at and speaking to directly. And she comes into the, to the desert running from being mistreated, alone, and God speaks to her. The angel comes and, and 
and has a conversation with her. And so she, she calls, in Hebrew, she, she uses the name for God, El Roy, which means the God who sees me. This is, this, by the way, giving this name to God, this kind of points out one of the projects of the book of Genesis and really the first five chapters of, or first five books of the Bible. Uh, this idea of trying to narrow God down by giving God the, the right name. It, it happens throughout the stories uh, in, in Genesis. In, in just the next chapter, God is going to tell Abram, I am El Shaddai, I am the all-powerful God. In the book of Exodus, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush, he says, I am who I am, I am Yahweh is my name, the one who is. This is the first time, this is the first time that God is identified as anything other than just generically as God in the book of Genesis. Genesis is trying to narrow down exactly who God is. At the very beginning in Genesis 1, God is Elohim. It's a plural Hebrew word, God. God created, Elohim. Very, very shortly through the book of Genesis, it gets shortened down to El, which is the singular for God. And, and, and uh, when, when Hagar names the Lord, it's El Roy, the God who sees me. Uh, this, is, this is the ongoing project of, of these first few books. And here, here is Hagar. Again, servant woman running from being mistreated, pregnant and alone in the wilderness. The first person to name God in the book of Genesis, to give a, a, specific, a specific name. The experience of, of having been seen by, by God is too significant for, for Hagar to contain in just giving God a name. <laughs> she has to also name the place. She has, to, she has to nail this place down and say, this is a significant place for me because God has seen me here. And so she, she gives the well the name, the, the, this, this place uh, where I've been seen by the one who sees me. The well of the living one who sees me. The, 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 the experience has impacted her so much that she has, to, she has to at least give a name to the spot so that she can go back to it find it again, maybe even experience God's goodness there again. This happens again through the book of Genesis. Uh, Jacob has a dream about God. He names the place Bethel, the, the place of God. Um, it's, it's an interesting experience. I, I, I think it's, it's pretty common for people in the wilderness to have, have experiences like this. Um, when wilderness, especially when wilderness has been imposed upon them by outward forces. I love the wilderness. I go to the wilderness to get away. But so often wilderness is, is a place in, in scripture and in life, wilderness is a place where we would never have chosen to go on our own. Over and over again, it seems that people end up in the wilderness by no choosing of their own, 
And it's in those places where God's presence becomes real to them in ways they never knew before. We discover in, in these moments that God has a blessing for us that we could never have understood or experienced if it weren't for the wilderness. We learn the mystery of God working in all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to God's purpose. And so if you're, if you're going through a wilderness like that right now, remember the example of Abram. Traveling in stages. Not going too fast. Building altars at every stop. We never read about God actually speaking to Abram in the, in the wilderness. There is never, there's no narrative in, in Genesis of God speaking to Abram in the Negev. But when Abram comes out of the wilderness, he finds that God has been faithful. That God had blessed him more than any of us would say that Abram deserves. But he kept seeking God. And so we keep seeking God. Because God is not finished with his project of calling people to relationship with himself. God is not finished asking people to walk closely by God's side. And so if, if you're getting through a valley like that, if you're going through a wilderness like that, and God is, is doing some good things, we remember the example of Hagar. We name the place. We, we remind God who God is to us. We speak God's name back to God. We, we tell God the story that he's leading us on. This is important. It's important when, we, when we're going through the wilderness and God does something good, it's important to name the place. To tell, to tell God who he is in those moments. To put words to your experience. I have been really blessed in this difficult season in the life of our church by the words that people have given to their experience. To the, to the names that people have chosen to call God in the midst of their wilderness. It would be easy to hold a grudge, right? It's easy to hold a grudge for other people. So when, when you are going through the wilderness, it's important to tell your story if God is being good. It's important to, to remind other people, God's not forsaken me. God's taken care of me. It's important to, to speak often of, of God's goodness. It's not everybody's experience, I know. Not, not everybody experiences God's presence in, you know, the God who sees me in the wilderness. And so, if, if that's not your experience, keep following the example of Abram. Just keep traveling by stages. Keep building altars. Keep being faithful. The wilderness doesn't last forever. When, when you are beyond the wilderness, 
as we go through those seasons where we don't see what God was doing until after we're out, until we're between Bethel and I, and we look around and we have too much stuff. We don't know what to do with all of the blessings that we've been given. So that may be your story if you're in the wilderness right now. Maybe it may be that you you are traveling by stages. You are you are waiting to see what God might be doing. The book of Genesis gives us this this hope that thousands of years ago God began this project of calling people to himself. Our experience now together reminds us that this is not a project that God has abandoned. God continues to call us to himself. Will you stand with me and let me pray for you? Lord, we do love you. We, uh, we don't understand all of the wildernesses that we go through. We don't understand all of, the, all of the ways that our brothers and sisters are traveling. We, we don't know uh, what you are doing in many situations. But God, would you help us to be faithful, to follow the example of Abram, to know that not everybody has the blessing of hearing your voice audibly. And that for those who feel like they are just traveling and that it, this wilderness can't end soon enough, Lord, would you give them peace to know that you do work all things together for the good of those who love you. But God, would you, would you also uh, surround them with the support that they need? Would you give them the help they need for each day? Would you use us as a body, Lord, to provide Support, care, love, a physical reminder of your goodness. And Lord, for those who are traveling the wilderness, who are experiencing your hand, we give you praise. We pray that you would continue to give them peace, hope, fill them with joy over what you could do in this season that they would have never chosen for themselves, but they find themselves in now. We love you, God. We pray that you would go with us into this day and into this week. Continue to press into your presence and experience your goodness, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us on the First NAS podcast. We look forward to seeing you in person soon at 1700 8th Street in Lewiston. Come join us.